guys can take your seats. Well, are you excited? Yeah? I think, uh, yeah, hey, buddy, yeah. I'm sorry, my mic's on, Mike, so. It is so good to be here this morning, and uh, I wanted to remind you of a couple of things. We have a great blessing this morning of having Dr. Lyle be with us. And in order to set the stage, I wanted to remind you of some statements we made last week, and then I wanted to make sure that you knew that there was an opportunity for you to ask questions. So we have a, uh, a slide here that will help you. We're going to try some technology. I didn't touch it, so it should survive. Um, if you have some questions as a result of this morning or this evening, when you come back, he's going to be doing a, uh, a different session. This evening, we're going to have an opportunity to not only ask and have uh, some of your questions answered, uh, but if you want to go online, you go to this menti.com, you type in the code that's there, uh, that'll get you to our session that we're going to be doing this evening. Uh, you can submit a question. If there's a question already on there that you like, uh, the more likes, that's the way our generation works, right? The more likes that uh, you give to a certain question, that'll move it up in the order so that it makes sure that it, uh, we can tackle it. Uh, that evening. Uh, this information, this link will be posted on Facebook and our website. We'll also make sure that this slide is back up at the end of the presentation uh, this morning. Okay? Are you guys good? We have random spots of enthusiasm. I think by the end it will all be there. This is uh, the other reminder. In Colossians 4, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. Be alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, Pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the message, to speak the mystery of the Messiah for which I'm in prison, so that I may reveal it as I am required to speak. Now he's speaking in opposition. He says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of your time. Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Remember, even as we talk about controversial subjects or subjects that uh, uh, there might be conflicting views in the room, the thing that we talked about last week was that our generation has mistaken loud for persuasive, all right? Shouting people down is not the way to get good information across, all right? That's the way to start a war. It is not a way to bless a brother. It is not a way to improve the room. So what I'm asking you to rem remember is as you are having discussions, whether it's with uh, Dr. Lyle or with anybody else as you're working through this, make sure that the grace of God comes through in your speech. Make sure that you are listening to what the others are saying, right? And most of all, let's make sure that the truth is proclaimed, all right? We're going to talk about that this morning. Dr. Lyle, would you please come? Let's welcome Dr. Lyle up here. Good to have you. I'm going to pray, but uh, one of the things I've been impacted by, and, and we've only uh, met just a couple of times, um, but every time that I've heard Dr. Lyle speak, he shares truth that is profound, it is beautiful, but also does that in a winsome way. As people have questions, he has handled that with grace and truth, and so I'm thankful to know you. Can I pray? Yes. Yeah. Father, we uh, give you thanks. We gave, give you thanks for the truth of your word and for the opportunity we have this morning to take a look at it. And I pray that uh, you give Dr. Lyle uh, insight this morning into not only the truth, but our hearts, that we would be able to listen, that you would tune our hearts to listen to you. Uh, 
uh, to see the truth of your word and to relish it. Father, I pray that you would be lifted up even as he speaks in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's really uh, good to be with you this morning. I want to thank you for having me out here to speak, and I want to talk on the, the topic of Science Confirms Biblical Creation, because we live, we live in a very blessed nation, a nation that was founded pr primarily by Christians and certainly on Christian principles, and yet not everyone in this nation is a Christian. Would you agree with that? Yeah, okay. Just want to make sure we're on the same page there. Uh, but how can that be? How can it be that this, this nation where we have so much information, where we have Christian radio and television and all these different Christian resources, and yet it seems like we're becoming a pagan nation? How is that happening? Well, I want to suggest to you that people do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God, or they don't believe that it's the inerrant Word of God, right? They might say, well, it has some truth in it, but it's, uh, it's not historically or scientifically accurate. That's a problem. That's a problem in our culture today. And uh, that's something that I want to deal with this morning because you see one of the main reasons that people think that uh, they can't trust the Bible is because they think it's been disproved by science. That's a big issue. They think that science has somehow disproved scripture. Most uh, children, they go to, most of them go to public schools and people think, well, they're getting neutral education there. They're not. For the, for the most part, they're getting a secular education there. They're being trained to be secular humanists. And I, there, there might be some exceptions and... I'm not knocking Christian. I appreciate Christians who are in the public school system, but you need to understand you're working within a secular system, and um, and maybe you're trying to make waves there, and that's that's great. I mean, we need that, but at the same time, most children come away thinking that they're, they're taught evolution, they're taught that the Bible's not trustworthy. Uh, what can we do to stop that? Well, I want to suggest to you that every Christian can know just the basics about science. And this will, in fact, confirm biblical creation. And then when you talk with uh, students, you'll, they'll, they appreciate that. Uh, studies have shown that two-thirds of students raised in conservative churches, two-thirds of them, when they're in their 20s, they walk away from the church. Two-thirds. And I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm talking about good conservative churches that teach the Bible. Yeah, and we, you know, we ask them questions, why is that? A lot of it comes down to the fact that, that most Christians can't answer the questions that they have. They're exposed to information in schools, and they, well, how, how, how do we deal with this as Christians? And most Christians say, well, you know, I, I don't know, or don't worry about it. And uh, in any case, um, uh, the, the worst thing you can do is to say, well, we don't have to worry about those parts of the Bible, right? <laughs> or those parts, might, those parts are not literally true anyway, and then that'll drive them away faster than anything, because the number one answer, we've done studies, surveys of what made you leave the church, the number one answer is hypocrisy. And when we asked them specifically what do they, what do they mean by that, a lot of times it was, well, Christians say they trust the Bible, but they really don't, at least when it comes to Genesis, when it comes to uh, those kinds of issues. So uh, can we get the slides up? Is that, is that working there? We had it all working this morning, and then the, uh, the I don't know, uh, Bill Gates puts anti-creation viruses on <laughs> these machines. And, <laughs> so is it on my end or on your end? Let me see here. Let's see if we can. Uh... I'm transmitting. Okay. The Microsoft solution. Unplug it and plug it back in. Restart it. Transmitting. Not the right one. Not the right one. 
Okay. Try duplicate. No joy. Well, I'm going to continue to transmit, and if you, if it's fixable, it's on your end. So, because I'm transmitting, it'll be better with slides, but uh, I can do it without slides. PowerPoint's a crutch anyway, right? <laughs> Well, if they come on, they come on. If they don't, they don't. Uh, I want to hit uh, three areas of science today and talk about these three areas and how science confirms biblical creation. Because if we're honest about it, Genesis is the book that's most attacked by the secularists. Secular archaeologists, they'll agree that you know, some of these later events happened, but not the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They think you know, millions of years of evolution is the way life came about. If that's true, then the gospel isn't because the gospel is predicated on the fact that death is the penalty for sin. That death entered the world when Adam sinned, because that's the right punishment for rebellion against God. Okay? Now, if, uh, if millions of years of evolution is true, then death and suffering has always been on this planet, and therefore, uh, death is not the penalty for sin. It's not something that Adam introduced, you see. And so you, you lose the whole message of the cross. It's not surprising people would walk away from the church when that happens. That's what we would expect. It doesn't make sense. The gospel message doesn't make sense on an evolutionary foundation. So I want to talk about three fields of science, and all of us can know just the basics of these three fields to help us understand uh, biblical creation and how science actually confirms uh, Scripture and not, uh, it is not contrary to it. Hey, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> we're going to talk about genetics, we're going to talk about information theory, and then we're going to talk about geology. Those are three fields that, that are um, really uh, foundational and, and very basic, and we don't need a lot of, you don't need to go out and get a PhD in these fields to understand them. They, they, uh, they make a lot of sense. So let's start with genetics, which is the study of heredity, how traits are passed down from parents to descendants. In, uh, in organisms, in plants, in animals, in human beings, and how animals change over time. Do animals change over time? Do dogs change? What do dogs change into? Dogs. Yeah, dogs change into dogs. They do. And you can get different breeds of dogs over the course of time. And we would expect that on the basis of Scripture. That is a scriptural principle because God made organisms after their kinds or after its kind. It's a phrase that's repeated ten times in Genesis. We better take that seriously, that organisms apparently reproduce after their kind. kind. The kind seems to be the reproductive limit of an organism. We know that because God brought two of each kind on board the ark to preserve life. And so that would seem to be the reproductive limit of an organism. Uh, kind does not mean species. Hmm. You can get different species from, a, from the same kind. You see, I found that a lot of times evolutionists misrepresent what it is that creationists teach, and in particular what the Bible teaches. That's a, that's a real problem. That's a straw man fallacy. Uh, a lot of times you'll see evolutionists say, well, creationists believe that God created all the organisms as we see them today, in some versions even where we see them today. Now, that is not biblical. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't use the word species in the original language anyway. Okay, and so the idea that, you know, all the species were at creation the way they are today, uh-uh, not true. I don't believe that there were poodles in the Garden of Eden, folks, okay, because it was a paradise. And uh, so, so this is not what we believe, okay? 
You see what I'm saying there? What we would believe is more like this. God has created certain kinds, and they have diversified a bit since creation. And some have diversified quite a bit. Dogs, really, there's a lot of variation within the dog kind, but they're still dogs. They were dogs at creation. They're dogs today. Poodles are just one of these little offshoots up there that happened as a result of sin, as we'll see now. <laughs> we'll get to that a little bit. But they remain the same kinds, don't they? Dogs have always been dogs. They're dogs today. They always will be dogs. That's not evolution. That's just dogs. Variation within a kind is what creationists predict. And that's what we find in the world. Variation within a kind. Sometimes evolution will say, well, that, see, there's evolution. You got dogs beginning dogs. And I'm thinking, that's just dogs. That's not evolution. Sometimes they're classified as a new species. There's a group of mosquitoes that goes off and lives in a cave for 100 years. And when it comes back out, it can't interbreed with the parent population due to genetic drift. And so it's classified as a new species. But you know what? It's still mosquitoes. And it's always going to be mosquitoes, unfortunately. Okay? Now, contrast that with the evolutionary view. The evolutionary view, all organisms are descended from one ancestor, and so you are related to a turnip in the evolutionary view. A turnip is your distant cousin. And in fact, I was speaking to a group of atheists one time, and I mentioned that. I said, you know, in your worldview, you, you believe you're related to broccoli or something like that. And uh, afterwards, one of them came up to, to me and said, well, weren't you kind of poking fun at us, you know, for saying we're related to broccoli? And I said, isn't that what you believe? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, there you go then, right? I mean, <laughs> don't shoot the messenger. If it sounds a little strange, reconsider your belief. Don't shoot the messenger for pointing it out. I don't believe we're related to broccoli, but my point is, in the evolutionary worldview, there really are no such thing as kinds, because everything's related by common descent. Now, to see which of these two views is confirmed by science, we need to know a little bit about uh, DNA. DNA is a very long molecule that occurs in the cells of your body. It's, it looks sort of like a twisted ladder. And on the rungs of this ladder are chemicals called nucleotide base pairs. And there's four different types of them. They're abbreviated by the four letters that you see there. And the G's and C's always line up, and the A's and T's always line up. But, uh, but they can occur in any order, okay? And the order in which they occur spells out the instructions to make the proteins that make you. It's really very remarkable. And it's kind of like in the same way you could put, uh, you could spell out help with beads on a rope using Morse code. In the same way, the information to make you and all the different characteristics, your eye color and your, and your hair and your, your bones and so on, that's all encoded in instructions in your DNA. It's, it's quite amazing, actually. I mean, we think we're clever. We can get all this information on a Blu-ray, and that's pretty impressive. But God put the information to make you on a molecule. That's amazing. And you got three billion of these base pairs. You got two, uh, six billion, actually, because you got two strands of DNA. You get one set from dad. You get one set from mom. And because you have two sets, it's actually the combination of instructions that determines your traits. And so you, you might notice that you look a little bit like your dad, you look a little bit like your mom, but you, ha you might have some traits that neither parent has. And that's possible because you have a unique combination, because you get a certain, only one of the two is transmitted, and you don't know in advance which one it's going to be, only God does. And so you can end up with a new combination of, uh, of genes, and therefore you have different uh, physical traits as a result of that. That's how it works, basically. So you can get all kinds of, of variation within a kind, within the human kind. In fact, if you do the math, the number of unique children, you take a, a, an average couple, married couple, and the number of children they can produce that are unique before you get the same combination of DNA is more than the number of atoms in the universe. So the, the number of variations, and it's a lot more too, it's not like a little bit more, it's enormous. And so the, the number of combinations is just outrageous. Here it is with uh, blood type. You know your different uh, blood types, and uh, here's how it works. You have two 
uh, genes there. Each one is an, an allele, and you have the A. If you have A and A, your blood type's A, that's easy. If you have A, if you get like A from dad and O from mom, your blood type's still A because A is dominant and O is recessive. The dominant kind of covers up the recessive and so on. Uh, likewise with B, if you get the B uh, there or you get the O and a B, that's still B. The only way you can have AB is to have both of them. And the only way you can have a blood type O is to have both O alleles, which is actually a very common blood type. So the O allele is very common in the human population. And so you can, have, you can get lots of different traits because of the different combinations of genes that are possible. The thing that I find interesting is that in two human beings, if they have what we call the heterozygous genome, where you have O and A and O and B, you have differences, then there's a lot of variation possible in the children. And so it, you know, this first, children might, the first child might get the blood type A, like mom, because uh, she gets the A from mom and the O from dad and so on. And, or B, or AB, which is a blood type neither parent has, but you still get, you know, you get the A from mom, the B from dad, or blood type O. Now, the interesting thing to me is these two blood types, neither, neither parent has that blood type, and yet the children can have that blood type. They still got the information from their parents, and that's, that's the thing I want to drill home. They got the, all the information you got, you got from your parents. Is, then how come I have traits that my parents don't have? Because you have a unique combination. And so I have, I have brown eyes like my mom, my brother has hazel eyes like my dad, my sister has blue eyes. I used to tell her she was adopted, she didn't. She's little or so, you know, but uh, no, I was, just, I was just teasing her. She knew that. But that, and that is possible because the, o, or the, um, the, the gene for uh, blue eyes is recessive, and so you can have that. Uh, here it is with skin color. We you know, we basically all have the same skin color, brown. It's just a question of how much, how brown, <laughs> how much do you have? If you have the more, uh, the, the lighter type genes over here, then you don't produce as much of the uh, melanin in your skin, and so you tend to have a light, you seem to be very light complected. If you have the, the, a lot more melanin, if your skin produces more of it and distributes it more, you have the darker color and so on. Uh, by the way, we think Adam and Eve probably would have been in this, one of this, these boxes, right? See, if you're in this box and you get married to somebody in that box, your kids are gonna be in that box because only capital A's and lowercase b's are available, that's it. And likewise, if you're in this box, you get married to somebody in that box, your kids are going to be in that box too because only the lowercase letters are available. But you see, if you're off axis, if you're over here, if Adam and Eve were in this category, their, their children could have had any possible combination, you see. And so it might have been very exciting for them. I wonder what, I wonder what shade this one's going to be and, you know, as, they, as they came out. It's kind of exciting. But uh, we're all descended from Adam and Eve, and so they must have had a combination, something like that. There's other ways to do it, but that's, that's one way anyway. We're going to focus on dogs because there's a lot of variation within the dog kind. And dogs reproduce quickly, and so we can kind of see how this, this works out. But you're going to find it's the same way. Dogs have certain information in their genome on how to make a dog, and some of those are variable. So you have dogs with short hair, long hair, a different color, and, and different sizes of dogs, and so on and so forth. Bacteria have instructions in them on how to make bacteria and how to make the proteins that bacteria make and so on. Horses have instructions in them on how to make a horse. Now the interesting thing is, of course, a horse has a lot more information in its DNA. It's not just that it has more DNA than bacteria, which it does, but it has more instructions in it, more information. A horse has information on how to make bones. Bacteria do not have that information and they can't make bones. Horse has information on how to make eyes and feet and so on. You get the point. A horse has a lot more instructions in its DNA, a lot more information than bacteria, which means if the horse evolved from something like bacteria, from a single-celled organism, as evolutionists believe, then obviously at some point the information had to increase in the DNA. 
Wouldn't that have to be the case logically? You got an organism that has very few instructions. If it turns into an organism that has lots of instructions, at some point instructions had to have been added. Information must increase in order for evolution to occur. Now, I'm not saying that's the only requirement, but at least that's a requirement. If you don't have an increase in information, you're not having evolution. And that's very interesting because the processes that we observe in science decrease information or are perhaps neutral, but they don't increase it. And I want to give you an example of this. One example is natural selection. It's ironic that many people think that natural selection is evolution. It's not. It's actually the opposite when you understand it. Natural selection is true. And in fact, uh, it was a creationist who wrote about it before Darwin. Darwin, I think, coined the name, perhaps, but not, he didn't come up with the idea. It was a creationist, Edward Blythe, who, who wrote about that. But in any case, the way natural selection works, and it does work, is you have, uh, let's say, suppose you have two dogs. I do this for kids sometimes. So you have two dogs, and they get married, and, and uh, they're going to have some offspring. Now, let's suppose that those dogs have a one gene for short fur and one gene for long fur, and suppose the genes have a combined effect, which some genes do, and so they have medium length fur. Now this is simplified, but the basic genetic principles here are true. And so if they have that combination, they'll both have medium fur, but then some of the dogs, when they have, when they have offspring, some of the dogs will get the short gene from mom, the short gene from dad, and they'll have short fur, because they have the short-short combination. Uh, some of the dogs will get the short gene from one parent, the long gene from the other, in fact, 50% of the offspring statistically will have that combination. They'll end up with medium length fur. And then some dogs will get the long gene from both, from both parents, from both mom and dad, and they'll have very long fur. Now, this already we can see variation within a kind. It's not evolution, right? Because we started with dogs and we ended up with dogs. That's not evolution. That's just dogs. Yeah? And, you know, they, they, they're still the same kind. We do have variation. We have some, some features that neither parent has, but the, they still got the information from mom and dad. They just have a unique combination, just like you do. Unless you have an identical twin, you have a unique combination in your DNA. Now, how does natural selection work? Well, let's suppose that the environment gets very cold, okay? And so now the dogs that have the shorter and medium length fur, they don't do so well in that cold environment, right? And so very sadly, they die, yeah. <laughs> I didn't say natural selection was nice, I just said it's true. But you can imagine that, dogs that are not as well insulated in the cold. Now the dogs that got, have the longer fur, they're going to do better in that cold environment, so they're going to survive. And they're going to meet other dogs that have survived because they also had the longer fur. And when they reproduce, they're going to have what kind of dogs? Dogs with long fur, yeah. And you can see that's the only combination possible because the other, th these aren't possible anymore because the information for short fur has been eliminated. Now, that's very interesting because what we have here is an example of adaptation. It's one type of adaptation. The environment got cold, and lo and behold, the dogs ended up with long fur. Not that they actively adapted to the environment, which, which can happen under certain circumstances, but in this instance, they already had long fur, and it's just that that suited them well to that environment, so they survived. The dogs that didn't have traits appropriate to that environment died off. That happens. It does. It's sad, but it happens. And so, let's, putting it another way, if the environment got hot, would you ever go back to having short or medium furred dogs? And the answer is no, they just die. Because that information is gone. So this is interesting because it's the opposite of evolution. Evolution is about an increase of information in your DNA. And here we have uh, animals that have lost information. They've lost the information for short and by implication medium length fur. It's gone. So natural selection is in the opposite direction of evolution. Isn't that interesting? 
It's, it's kind of funny because you know, Darwin thought if he could convince people of natural selection, which is a true principle, he, he, he tried to tie that to evolution and thought if he could convince people of one, it would prove the other. But they're, they're opposites. They're exact opposites. Now, if we started the experiment over again and we had all three varieties, and this time let's let the environment get very hot, now what's going to happen? Well, the dogs that have the uh, longer fur then, they don't do so well in that hot environment, and so sadly they die this time. But the dogs that have the shorter fur, they do, they do perfectly well in that warm environment, and they meet other dogs that have the shorter fur, and they reproduce, and lo and behold, the dogs they reproduce will have the shorter fur. But again, this is, this is a great example of adaptation, great example of natural selection or survival of the fittest. The fittest survived, those that were well-adapted, well-suited to that environment. But it's not evolution because it's in the opposite direction. We haven't gained any new information. We've lost information. It's the exact opposite of evolution. And this is how we account for the different dogs, the wild dogs that we find in the world. Those that have the longer fur tend to end up in the colder climates. Those that have the shorter fur tend to end up in the warmer climates. If they didn't, they would die, and so on and so forth. And so that's, it's not surprising. And so my point is you don't need to take two of each breed of dog on board Noah's Ark. People, that's, that's one of the caricatures that evolutionists sometimes push against creationists. All, you, know, you got Noah taking two Dalmatians and two Dachshunds and two St. Bernards, and he certainly didn't need two poodles on the ark, right? <laughs> he just needed two dogs. And you get all those breeds later. Because as the dogs got off the ark, and they reproduced, and so on, and they, they moved away from the mountains of Ararat, they would take certain traits with them. And some of them would have an advantage in a particular environment, and they would tend to survive well. Others would be a disadvantage in that environment, and they would tend to die off. And some traits would just be sort of neutral, like eye color doesn't have a huge effect on survival and so on. It just happens to be which, which traits moved with the animals as they split apart. But we find that animals are well suited to their environments because if they weren't, they would, they would not be there. They would have died off. God has created organisms with the ability to produce variations within their kind due to the genetic information that God put in the original dog kind. And so this is how you account for the different uh, wild dogs that we find in the world. Yes, we believe that wolves and dingoes and coyotes, we think they're all related. We think there's just one dog kind, and that all of these animals were descended from two that were on board Noah's Ark, and you can get all those differences later. Not a problem. Natural selection, variation within a kind, the opposite of evolution, because the information has been removed. What about mutations, though? Because evolutionists say it's not just natural selection, Dr. Lau, it's natural selection and mutations. And so let's talk about mutations for a little bit. A mutation is a, basically a mistake in your DNA a copying error. A lot of times it happens when, when the DNA is being replicated, when it's being duplicated, copied. And so it's, uh, you're supposed to have, for example, dogs that have information for four normal legs. There is a mutation, a copying mistake, that causes some of that information to be lost, and you end up with a dog with short, stubby little legs because he's missing some instructions, and so his legs don't form properly. And so um, if you think about it, that, that dog right there is not going to do so well in the wild. Right? Because he's got those short, stubby little legs, he can't run very fast, he can't catch anything, he's more likely to be caught by something else. Right? So we, we find that in, in nature, uh, mutations tend to be weeded out a little bit because they tend to produce mistakes that cause something to go wrong with, with, a, uh, with an animal. And in fact, some mutations are immediately fatal. There's some mutations that will cause your heart not to form properly. Well, that, that happens, you're dead, that's it. And so you can't reproduce then if you're dead, right? Because that's, that's, that, gene, that mutation will be eliminated then. So we find that, that mutations somewhat in the, in the wild are reduced a little bit, not completely, because some mutations are just inconvenient rather than fatal. 
Uh, but to some extent, they're reduced in nature. But not in the world of domesticated animals. Because you see, some people like dogs with short, stubby little legs because they can't chip up on you as much. And so people will take these dogs with short, stubby little legs and breed them with other dogs with short, stubby little legs. And you end up with lots of dogs with short, stubby little legs. Now, that's, that's a pro it's not evolution because it's in the wrong direction. You're missing some instructions. But that is why domestic breeds of dogs tend to be full of mutations because they don't need to survive in the wild. They're not eliminated by natural selection. They have a human caretaker who will spend millions of dollars trying to keep them alive because they're missing all these different instructions, right? <laughs> and so, all, all, and, and generally, uh, domestic breeds of dogs, they do, have, they do have problems. There's a mutation that causes a dog's snout not to form properly. A dog's supposed to have a long snout. There's a mutation that causes it to be short. And then, the, of course, the skin is designed to fit the longer snout, so the skin kind of hangs off the side. And if you don't clean it and get infected, and some people think that's cute, but have you ever thought about it from the dog's perspective? Gee, I love it having my nose stuffed into my face. And, uh, and of course, the lower jaw is still large, and so it, it, it has an underbite, and it's, uh, it's not maybe so fun from the dog's point of view. Poodles have, <laughs> have some problems. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Either as a result, I'm not, by the way, I'm not anti-poodle, but I mean, they're cute, but they really do have some, they really do have some problems. And uh, that's just because of these mutations that have accumulated in their DNA. And some of these are secondary results. You have a mutation that causes one problem and then a secondary um, result um, happens from that. For example, there's a mutation that causes a poodle's hair to grow forever. Uh, most dogs, the hair grows so long and then it stops and falls out and that regulates the, the length of the hair. With a poodle, it grows indefinitely. That animal could not survive in the wild, trying to drag all that hair behind it, right? It needs a human caretaker to give it a haircut every now and then. And if, and if you don't do it right, it can get in their eyes, and their eyes can get infected, and they can go blind, or it can get in their ears, and they can get infected. It can even result in the death of the animal. And so my point is, this is, this is not evolution, right? First of all, it's still a dog. I mean, barely, but it's still a dog. <laughs> it's just missing some instructions. And as a result, it's got some problems. And so, you see, this is how we account for the different, kind, the different varieties of domestic dogs that we find in the world today. It's a result of the variation that God put in the original kinds and mutations, mistakes that have crept in and caused little, little problems in, the, in these organisms. But this is not evolution because it's in the opposite direction of evolution. It's a downhill process, right? We think the dogs that were on board Noah's Ark were more like the wolf kind, because the wolves, still, they still have a lot of heterozygosity, big A, little a, big B, little b in their, in their genome. And, but what you do then is you take those mutations and you concentrate them and you focus them down until you get down to the poodle, and that's, that's, pretty, much, that's pretty much it right there, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the bottom line. When I'm, when I'm explaining it to kids, I tell them, you can think of the information in your DNA like jelly beans. And so you start with the wild kinds of dogs, lots of information, lots of jelly beans, and then you, by selectively breeding them, uh, you, you eliminate the heterozygosity, you concentrate the mutations, you get down to the poodle, you don't have much information left. It's kind of the bare, bare minimum of what's necessary to make the thing stay alive. And uh, a friend of mine says that, um, that poodles, you can think of them kind of like in, in the world of cars, that poodles are kind of like IKEA. They're sort of the, the bottom line of, of cars, you know? Like, think of the Rolls Royce. Lots of extra stuff on it. You got the windshield wipers on the headlights. I mean, that's kind of neat. I mean, it's, it's not really necessary, but it's just an extra nice little feature. Whereas with the with IKEA, it's kind of, it's just kind of, you remove one part, it's not a car anymore, right? It's, uh, and so poodles are kind of like that. They're kind of like the, the Kia. And uh, now, <laughs> natural selection 
And mutations are just like removing jelly beans. And you, you, you concentrate the mistakes. But can you ever turn a dog into a cat by removing those jelly beans? And the answer is no, because a cat has different information. It's got instructions on how to make, lo and behold, a cat. And those are different instructions. Now, by the way, some of our instructions are the same because we use some of the same proteins. That's really important if we want to uh, you know, consume meat and get nutrients from it. It's important that we use some of the same proteins as animals. And so obviously some of our DNA is going to be the same. Evolutionists say, well, that's due to common descent. No, it's because God was smart and he, he you know, wanted to be, us to be able to eat plants and eventually animals as well, meat. But um, you know, if, if God had given each organism totally different biochemistry, which he could have done, and totally different DNA, we would not be able to eat anything except each other, and that would be a problem, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, you can see that when we study genetics, we see, and we study dogs in particular, and see how dogs reproduce, we find, lo and behold, dogs reproduce dogs. And they, they lose some instructions, that's, that's not surprising. But this is good observational science, it's testable and repeatable in the present. And it confirms what we would expect if creation's true, because God created the original kinds, put information in them, and some of that has been lost since creation. If evolution were true, information should gradually accumulate, but we do not observe that in nature. I should point out that mutations can be beneficial under certain circumstances. There are certain mutations that can occasionally help an organism survive in a particular environment, but that's still by losing information. As, as one example, antibiotic resistance. And this is something where evolutionists say, well, see here, these, these bacteria have evolved res resistance to penicillin. Let me show you how this works. There's a few different ways this can happen, but none of them involve evolution. Uh, H. pylori is a bacterium that causes stomach ulcers. And what you do is you're not feeling so well, and so your doctor gives you an antibiotic. The antibiotic goes into the bacterium, and, it, and he's got an enzyme that's part of his system, a protein, that when it interacts with that antibiotic, it converts the antibiotic into a poison, and the poison kills the bacterium, and you feel better and take it your medical bill. <laughs> There's a mutated form of H. pylori who's missing some instructions and lacks the ability to produce that enzyme. And so when the antibiotic goes into him, it just sits there because he, he lacks the ability to produce, at least not very much, he produces a little bit, but not very much of that enzyme. And so he survives. He, but he survives because of less information. He, he survives because he's lost some instructions. So this is not evolution, it's in the opposite direction. Antibiotic resistance is the opposite of evolution. Because evolution, you need to gain information, antibiotic resistance, you've lost some. Which, by the way, is why you need to take all your antibiotic even when you're feeling better. Because when you feel better, you've killed off the, the normal variety, and, uh, and so they're dead. But then the only ones that are left are these ones, and they take a little longer to kill because they, don't have, they have a little bit of that enzyme. It takes a lot longer to, for them to kill. If you don't, then, then these guys will reproduce, and now you've got a resistant strain, and it's harder to kill the second time, you see. So that's how that works. It's the opposite of evolution, though. Mutations don't add information to the genome. In fact, Dr. Lee Spetner, one of the world's experts, and he's a biophysicist, and he's studied mutations, and he says all point mutations that have been studied on the molecular level turn out to reduce the genetic information, not to increase it. He says not even one mutation has been observed that adds a little information to the genome. Isn't that interesting? They're all in the wrong direction to make evolution happen. So when we study genetics, we find that it confirms biblical creation. It does not confirm evolution. Observational science, testable, repeatable in the present, confirms creation. We've been talking about information. There's a whole field of science involving information, how it's transmitted, and so on. Information theory, it's a fascinating field, especially in our modern computer age and, 
Uh, the neat thing about information theory is it just, it just solidly confirms creation. So what is information? I mean, we sort of have an idea about it. You read a book, there's information there. But how would you define it? Well, information, we can define it this way. It always involves three uh, essential uh, quantities. I've simplified this a little bit. But basically, information always entails a symbolic code system. And so, for example, when I pick up the Bible, the Bible has information in it. Any book does, really. And, uh, and I turn to a particular page, and I see a certain word. I see the word um, troops. And now, I don't actually see troops here, right? I see a word, and it symbolizes something else. That's what words do. Words are linguistic tokens. They represent something else. So it's got a symbolic code system. No problem there. There is a language convention. This Bible happens to be English. Originally, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, uh, some Aramaic and so on, but, but primarily those languages. There's a language convention. It's got grammar, syntax. There are rules, right? The Bible qualifies for that. And there is meaning. There is an expected action and an intended purpose. God expects us to do something when we read his word. And that's true of any other book, too. Sometimes it's just that you, that you know the information, but sometimes there's, there's a, a physical action outward. When you, when you read a cookbook, the expected action is that you will combine the ingredients in that fashion. And then there's a purpose to it. For a cookbook, the purpose is so that you won't go hungry. Uh, for the Bible, the purpose is so that you may have, you may have eternal life. So... That's how you identify information. It has a symbolic code system, a language convention, and meaning. You can learn something from it. There's an expected action. And so, for example, could this be information? Could be. It looks like there might be a symbolic code system there. Does it have language? Well, maybe. Does it have an expected action, and intended purpose? Is it, is it meaningful? The answer is yes. This is information. I know that because I know the translation. Okay? This happens to be... Genesis 1, 1 through 5, in the form of icons. You see? In the beginning, the clipboard, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good. You see? Isn't that neat? So that is information. It qualifies. It qualifies. And, and we can identify information. That's, that's not a problem. Symbolic, code system, language convention, Expected action, intended purpose, meaning. Now, whenever you have information, laws, certain laws of nature apply to it. Just like when you have energy, there are certain laws of nature that deal with energy, like the law of conservation of energy, for example, which says, which says energy can't be created or destroyed. Likewise, there are laws of information. Dr. Werner gets one of the world's experts on information theory, and he says, there is no known law of nature, no known process, and no known sequence of events which can cause information to originate by itself in matter. So information doesn't just spontaneously generate itself in matter. Yeah. So where does it come from? If it doesn't just spontaneously originate, where does information come from? Well, it can be copied. A Xerox machine can copy information. But where does information originally come from? According to Dr. Gitt, it ultimately goes back to a mind. He says, when its progress along the chain of transmission events is traced backwards, every piece of information leads to a mental source, the mind of the sender. And so, you know, a Xerox machine, you can copy that, and you can send it to another Xerox machine and copy it. But if you trace it backwards, if you go back in time and follow it back, where was it copied from? Where was it copied from? Well, it got it from a computer. Where was it copied from? Another computer. Somebody ultimately wrote it. If you have brand new creative information, originally somebody wrote it. Always goes back to a mind the mind of the center. That appears to be a law of nature. And so it's something that's never violated. And that's very interesting. Because what do we have in DNA? Information. 
Where did it come from? Well, you got your information from your parents. The information in your DNA came from your parents, and they got it from their parents. Some of that's been lost over time, which is why we all have problems. We all have, I mean, there's certain, something in my back didn't develop right, and so I get back pain from time to time. And my, just like my dad did, I inherited that little mutation from him. Thank you very much, Dad. But uh, not his fault, of course. He got it from his dad and so on. Ultimately, there was that mutation that entered. You know, we're, we're all basically a little bit like the poodle, really. We're all, we all got these problems. But where did the information originally come from? Originally, it came from Adam and Eve, and they got it from the mind of God. So you see, creation is consistent with the laws of information theory. Isn't that interesting? But not evolution. Because, of course, according to evolution, that information gradually increased over time. But that violates the law that information never spontaneously generates in matter. It always goes back to a mind. Creation's consistent with the laws of science as we understand them. Evolution is not. And by the way, I know that in their heart of hearts, even evolutionists know that information never comes about by chance, that it goes back to a mind. In their heart of hearts, they know that. I know that because I did a little social experiment. Years ago, I posted a, uh, an article on my blog, and the article is entitled, On the Origin of Articles. And the article tries to convince you that articles do not have authors, but that they spontaneously generate as, as typos accumulate over time, okay? And so, and it goes through and tries to convince you that all articles probably started out as a single letter, and then as others were added, and you know, and of course most of, most of the changes that are just random, random chance changes, random typos in articles, most of them make the article worse, but then we discard those, right? And so the ones that make the article better, you might, you might say, well, every now and then a typo might make an article better, and those are preserved, and so the article gradually grows longer, over millions of years, of course. And um, anyway, I, I, I posted this. I, I, can't, I can't claim to have written it or it would defeat the purpose, but um, I posted it on, on my blog. And the funny thing was not so much the article. The funny thing was the responses. Because I allowed, at the time, I allowed evolutionists to get in there and chime in. And we know you wrote this, Dr. Lyle. And I said, how do you know that? Did you see me write it? Well, well no, but uh, well, you know, we, we, know that, we know that you did. Well, how? Well, we could trace the IP address, and we, well, I already admit to posting it. When this thing evolved on my computer, I couldn't help but post it. <laughs> and so I, I, I then started playing with them a little bit. I defended the evolutionary view of articles, and I started playing with You know, you must be one of those authorists that believes in authors and, <laughs> and things like that. And, uh, you know, if you want to believe that, fine, but keep it in church, man. And uh, anyway, it was, it was, you should check it out later and, and uh, look at the comments, and, and it's, it's fun. But you see, they could have very easily proved that I wrote it. All they had to do was say, well, it's got information, and information comes from a mind. That's all they'd have to say. But they can't say that. Why? Because then they lose evolution. Because in DNA, you got information, and they'd have to admit that that comes from a mind. Isn't that interesting? And so they, they would rather lose the argument and admit that they can't prove that I wrote the article and that they're taking it on blind faith than to admit that, um, that organisms have a creator. Isn't that interesting? Let's talk about geology now, the study of rocks, and we'll talk a little bit about fossils that are found within those rocks, at least the sedimentary rock layers. Uh, first thing I need to, the little myth I need to blow up is that these rocks are billions of years old because we're taught that scientists you know, have proven that the Earth's 4.5 billion years old. That decimal point just makes it sound so impressive. 4.5, 4.566 or whatever the latest number is. 
Um, but the fact is, we, you, you can't tell how old a rock is by scientific means. You can't tell it just by looking at it or by any measure of science. People have misconceptions. They think, well, yeah, but the scientists, they do radiometric dating, and that's, you know, they take out their tricorder and they just scan the rock, and it tells you the age, right? They measure the, they measure the ageicals, and it tells you the age of the rock. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. There is a method called radiometric dating where scientists attempt to make a guess about the age of a rock, and that's all it is. It's a guess about the age of the rock, and it's based on certain assumptions. The way it works, and I'll just cover this very briefly, there are certain atoms, we're all made of atoms, right? Protons and neutrons in the nucleus and then the electrons orbiting around. Now some atoms are unstable, which means they will spontaneously decay or change into another type of atom. And fortunately, most atoms don't do this, so you're not going to change into anything in the next 24 hours anyway. But uh, there are certain atoms, like uh, uranium-238, uh, which will change into thorium. You don't have to do anything. It does it all by itself. It will just spontaneously, at some point in time, it will just pop, and it will change into thorium, and it releases energy uh, when it does that. And then thorium will decay into the next one, and then and, then and so on, all the way down to lead-206. And lead-206 is stable. So once you're lead-206, it'll stay lead-206 forever. But these other ones are unstable, and they, they, they pop. Now, you can't tell when any individual atom is going to pop. It's, it's random. But statistically, when you have a lot of them together, you can tell that over time, it, it, it happens at a very consistent rate. It's kind of like popcorn. You don't know when each kernel is going to pop, but you do know after two minutes in the microwave, you're, you're pretty much done. They're, the ones that are going to pop have popped. And so it's the same way with these atoms. Statistically, over time, you can tell how long it takes. And with uranium, theoretically, uh, for half of uranium to change to lead, it would take billions of years. And so that's it, what they call the half-life of it. And so the idea is if you, if you started with a chunk of solid uranium and you waited you know, for a long time, billions of years, it would be part uranium, part lead. And if you waited even longer, eventually it would be all lead. And we know the rate at which that changes. And the idea is you can use that rate of change like a clock. That's pretty clever, right? And so what scientists do is they'll have a rock that has some uranium and some lead in it, as well as the intermediate elements, which I'm not addressing for the sake of simplicity. And then they can run the clock backwards and figure out when it was all uranium. But how do you know it was all uranium to start with? Maybe it had some lead in it to begin with. You see what I'm saying? Well, how much, how, and by the way, secularists do not assume that it was all uranium to start with. They assume it had some lead in it to begin with. But how much lead did it start with? Well, you tell me how old you want the rock to be, and I'll tell you how much lead it started with. <laughs> See what I'm saying? That's a problem. And, and secularists are aware of this, and they've got their methods by which they try to make those guesses and so on. But ultimately, it's a guess. Uh, again, you can think of the uranium changing into lead like sand going from the top chamber to the bottom chamber in the hourglass. So uranium to lead. And it happens at a consistent rate today. But there are all kinds of assumptions that go in when you, when you want to say, but how, when did this start? Well, how do you know that all the sand was in the top chamber to begin with? You don't know that. Maybe, maybe somebody turned that hourglass over just three seconds ago, and already a lot of the sand was in the bottom chamber. You see, that's a possibility. That's an, that's an assumption of initial conditions. Or how do you know somebody didn't add sand when you weren't looking? That's an assumption of the closedness of the system. And then you have the, uh, how do you know the throat of the bottle's always been the same size? Which is probably pretty realistic for an hourglass. But we don't know what, what keeps radio active um, decay at, at a particular rate. That's not really known, and so it could change. And in fact, we've been able to change it in a laboratory. And some, some forms of radioactive decay have been sped up by a factor of a billion in a laboratory. And if we can do it, it can probably happen in nature as well. We, certainly God can do anything we can do and many things we can't do. So th these are some of the assumptions that are built into radiometric dating. And my point is they're assumptions. And so all you end up with is a guess. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that we've taken 
some of these rocks from a recent volcano. And radiometric dating is supposed to tell you when the rock hardened, when it, when it solidified. Because before that, the, the materials can move in and out if it's in a liquid state. So we took rocks actually from Mount St. Helens. And uh, when it blew in 1980, and there were some subsequent eruptions, it formed brand new rocks. And we sent some of them in and had them dated, which you normally wouldn't do, right? Because why would you? I mean, it's expensive to, to date a rock that way, to, to um, analyze it for its radioactive elements. So you normally don't do that on rocks whose age you already know. Why would you do that? It's only a few years old. Well, we wanted to test the method, you see. And we sent them into a, a secular lab so we couldn't be accused of bias. And they came back with age estimates of hundreds of thousands to millions of years on rocks that we know are brand new. And so you see, my point is, radiometric dating has been shown to not work on rocks of known age. And yet secularists continue to assume that it works on rocks of unknown age. That's really the bottom line. If you, if you can forget, forget all the stuff about the assumptions that are involved. When we test it on rocks whose age is known, it tends to give the wrong answer. I mean, occasionally we'll give the right answer, but often it gives the wrong answer. Sometimes it'll even give a negative age. Did you know that? You, some of these methods, will, depending on how they, they do it, you can actually get a negative age for a rock, which I think is fascinating. You can hold a rock that, according to radiometric dating, does not exist yet. <laughs> what about carbon dating? People think carbon dating gives millions of years. It does not. Carbon dating is our friend. It, now, it's based on assumptions, too, but we think the assumptions are a little better with carbon dating because when we test it on things of known age, it tends to give about the right answer, within a factor of 10 anyway. It doesn't, it's not off by a, a large amount. And the interesting thing is that when we use carbon dating, uh, I'm not going to go into all the details on this, but the point is carbon dating gives answers that are consistent with biblical creation every time. If somebody says, well, we know that Earth's millions of years old because of carbon dating, they don't know what they're talking about because no knowledgeable scientist would say that. Even uh, the secularists would admit that carbon dating gives recent ages, even on things that evolutionists believe to be billions of years old, like uh, diamonds, for example. Diamonds have C14Ms. The half-life of C14 is uh, 5,730 years. So it can't last millions of years, and yet we find it in diamonds that are supposed to be billions of years old. It, it demonstrates they're not that old. There's lots of stuff like that, hundreds of physical processes that even if you make the, the secular assumptions of sort of consistency of rates and so on, you run it back, you find that the, the Earth can't be as old as the secularists claim. The rate at which salt accumulates in the ocean, you do the math and you find that it, it puts an upper limit on the ocean of 62 million years, which may sound like a lot, but that's an upper limit. You see, it can't be older than that, so it's consistent with 6,000 years. It's not consistent with the 3 billion years in the secular view, or the rate at which mud accumulates on the ocean floor. Uh, 20 billion tons a year accumulates, and you measure the amount that's there, and you find that it would take less than 12 million years to accumulate the mud on the ocean floor. That's assuming there's no worldwide flood, which would dump a lot of mud very quickly, obviously. And so again, it's inconsistent with the secular age of three billion years for the oceans, and, uh, but it's consistent with the, the biblical age. Human population, how long does it take to get Earth's current population from two people? It doesn't take millions of years. It's, it's very consistent with biblical creation. We've been able to, to uh, measure that over time. And so, uh, and again, you have to include for the different mortality rates in the past and so on, but you don't get millions of years. Very consistent. What's the best evidence for thousands of years? And the best evidence is, is we have the birth certificate of the universe. God tells us when he created, he tells us he made the, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. This, by the way, this is the explanation for the commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Six days will do all your labor, the seventh is the Lord's. That's in verse 8. And then it you know, goes on and says, you know, you're not to work on the, on the Sabbath day, and not you or your, or your servant or anything. And then verse 11 is the explanation for why. It's because that's what God did 
And he did that as a pattern for us. Yes, he had the power to create instantly, or over millions of years, but he chose to create in six days and rest one as a pattern for us. And the science confirms that. And so the secularists say, the earth is billions of years old, take my word for it. God says, I created six days, take my word for it. That's really the issue. What about these fossils that we find? Well, we do find fossils, but you know, fossils indicate rapid burial. Here's a fossil ichthyosaur, a marine reptile fossilized in the process of giving birth. You see the baby ichthyosaur being born there? And so this must have happened fairly quickly. Here's a fish eating another fish. That's not something that happens gradually over millions of years. Most things don't become a fossil. Uh, I've been picking on dogs, so let's pick on cats now. Let's, let's do an experiment on our dead cat, Earl, okay? <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll watch him slowly fossilize over millions of years, because that's what happens, right? Well, what happens is he starts to decay. He starts to not smell so good. And yeah, very sad. And then after a while, parts of Earl are missing. And then after, after a little more while, more Earl's missing. And after a while, Earl's missing. And, so, and, and you know that. You've seen animals that have been you know, knocked on the side of the road. They don't, they don't just turn into statues over millions of years. They decay. They're recycled back into the environment. If you want to fossilize something, you have to bury it. And even there, I was given the wrong idea. See, we find fossil fish all over the earth, but I was given the wrong impression. I was told the, the fish dies, it sinks down to the bottom, it's slowly covered with sediment over millions of years. That doesn't work, because if this layer were deposited a million years after that layer, the top part of the fish would have plenty of time to decay and be scavenged and recycled in the environment. That's what happens. If you want to really form a fossil fish, here's how you do it. You go home to your aquarium, <laughs> and you pour some concrete on your fish. Okay? <laughs> I don't know about here, but this is still legal in Texas. Anyway, that's going, to, uh, that's going to kill the fish, right? It's going to bury them quickly, and then usually there's enough bacteria left that they'll, they'll be able to eat away at the soft parts of the fish, but then the, the uh, bones permineralize, the minerals move in there, and you end up with a stone in the shape of a bone. We find fossils like that all over the world. It indicates a worldwide flood is what it indicates. Even the order in which the uh, fossils are found indicates, you know what, I was almost done anyway, so there we go. <laughs> so that's what it indicates. Well, there we go. I wanted, to, I wanted to end with this anyway. This is really what the message of the rocks is. It's not millions of years of evolution. It's a worldwide flood. The kinds of fossils we find, they don't indicate evolution. They indicate variation within a kind. That's what we find. Some of the variations have gone extinct now. Some entire kinds have gone extinct. We don't find the dinosaurs anymore. But when you find these fossils, you shouldn't think millions of years of evolution. You should say, oh, worldwide flood. God judges sin. It's a message of repentance. That's really what it is. Because God's going to judge the world again. It's not going to be by water. It's going to be by fire next time. Are you ready? That's really the issue. And uh, just as God provided a way of escape in uh, Noah's time, he's provided a way of escape today in Jesus Christ. That's all, ultimately our salvation. The, the, the ark was just sort of a picture of salvation. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was preaching, come on board the ark and be saved. And uh, that's, that's the right message, of course. We want to preach today, come to Jesus and be saved. I think it's interesting, God was the one that shut the door on the ark. God was the one who said, time of grace over time of judgment begins. And we don't know when that'll be for each one of us. So that's why it's uh, so urgent that we get this message out there. And we show people you can trust the gospel because you can trust Genesis on which the gospel is based. And the science lines up with that. We have a number of resources that I encourage you to get. We have a table out back there that I encourage you to check that out. We have this presentation, Science Creation Science Confirms the Bible, on DVD, uh, out there for your uh, enjoyment. We have the ultimate proof of creation. You say, well, I, you know, I'm not really 
I, I can't remember, remember all this scientific stuff. Can you give me one bulletproof argument for creation? Yes, I can. There it is. It's in that book. It's going to show you how to think and debate the way Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And Jesus was not the sort of person you wanted to debate against. He's very good at it. God has yet to lose an argument. And if you learn to think that way, you're going to do very well. Of course, you need to be gracious in the way you do it. But uh, in terms of giving the argument, it's very powerful. And we have a DVD that goes along with that, The Ultimate Proof of Creation DVD. Uh, the book, Understanding Genesis, how, did God really create in six days and were those ordinary days? And how should we interpret Genesis? And that's the book you want to get there. Uh, Taking Back Astronomy, I'll talk about this tonight. Come back tonight, we'll talk about astronomy and how it reveals creation. Uh, this is the book that goes along with the talk that I'm going to give this evening. Discerning Truth, How to Spot Logical Fallacies in Arguments that Evolutionists Tend to Make. That's a great resource because a lot of times the arguments for evolution really are just, in fact, I have yet to hear a good argument for evolution, honestly. And there's a DVD that goes along with that, Evolution and Logical Fallacies. Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, How to Better Enjoy the Night Sky from a Christian Perspective. That's a fun resource. And it's not really an apologetic book, it's just How to Enjoy the Night Sky from a Christian Perspective. And so a lot of fun. Created Cosmos, a tour of the universe uh, DVD. Uh, his star. What about the star that guided the Magi to Christ? If you want to know what's, what that's all about, there's the DVD on that. Creation Evangelism, how to take this message and use it to, uh, to, to share the gospel with folks. And that's a, that's a wonderful resource for you as well. Keeping Faith in an Age of Reason answers 420 alleged Bible contradictions. You've heard people say, well, you can't trust the Bible because this verse contradicts that verse. Well, I took, uh, I took the 420 most common that are there and answered them. And not one of them is a legitimate contradiction. Not one. It's not surprising, but uh, anyway. Uh, the Physics of Einstein. This one's a little more in-depth than the others, but what about uh, time travel and distant starlight? How do you get the light from the galaxies to Earth? I'll talk about that briefly this evening. What about black holes and things like that? So that's a fun resource as well. If you want to get all the books together, you can get those at a uh, discount of 20%, 21%. Or if you want to get all the DVDs together, we'll, we'll give you a discount there, also around 20%. Or you can get all of them together, the books and DVDs, for, and save 27%. So that's a way to have an instant creation library. So a lot of people like that option, and it saves you money. Uh, do sign up for our free monthly newsletter. It is free, right? Not too many things free in this world, just uh, salvation and our newsletter. So be sure to sign up for that. <laughs> and uh, there's no catch. We just want to bless you. It is an electronic newsletter. You will get it in your email. If you don't put your email address, you will get nothing. If you don't put your email address legibly, you will get nothing. So be sure to sign up for that. Check us on the web, Biblical Science Institute. Uh, it's a free resource for you. And, and because I've made it free, we're donation-based, so we could use, we could use uh, your support. We have a partnership program where you can do kind of a monthly uh, support there. And, uh, but whatever, whatever you like, uh, check us out. And uh, I want to thank you very much for having me out to speak. I really appreciate it. God bless you. And thank you, Dr. Lyle, for being here. Hey, this evening for our uh, third service, come back. Dr. Lyle will be here in this auditorium at 5 o'clock tonight giving another talk. Um, thanks so much for being here. You guys are dismissed.